Australians have collectively reached for the remote and turned down the volume on Canberra's noise. This is it. This is as thick as it gets. You're stark raving mad. Got anyone asking questions here? What is happening to mainstream media? You are fake news. Well, I think sometimes we can disagree with the facts. I have never had more fun in my life. This is Represent. 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 On Sydney. Good afternoon. You're listening to Represent on Nation. I'm Maggie. I'm Zizi. And I'm Oscar. That's right. On today's show, we'll be covering, first of all, the G7 Summit that is happening right now in Quebec and Canada. Then we're going to be moving on to talk a little bit about the latest ruling in the US with the baker and uh, making a cake for a same-sex couple. And lastly, we're going to talk go talk a little bit about Australian foreign and defence laws, war crimes and national security at large. And of course, we'll have head-to-head at the very end where we're going to talk a little bit about impersonators of Kim Jong-un and Donald Trump and who's a bit better, looks a bit more accurate. But as always, we want to hear your thoughts. Send us a tweet to at SinRepresent or follow us on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash SinRepresent. We now turn to the G7 summit where the summit has begun and it's been rocked by quite a lot of um, controversy, uh, mostly coming out of comments by uh, by uh, Donald Trump. So the first uh, quite controversial comment that he made was, so up until 2014, G- uh, G7 was G8, which included Russia. However, they were expelled in 2014 for the annexation of Crimea. And... So Trump stated that it should be brought back. Yeah, we're going to go to a clip now of Donald Trump talking on that exact topic to the press. The G8, because Russia was in it, and now Russia's not in it. Now, I love our country. I have been Russia's worst nightmare. If Hillary got in, I think Putin is probably going, man, I wish Hillary won, because you see what I do. But with that being said, Russia should be in this meeting. Why are we having a meeting without Russia being in the meeting? And I would recommend, and it's up to them, but Russia should be in the meeting. It should be a part of it. You know, whether you like it or not, and it may not be politically correct, but we have a world to run. And in the G7, which used to be the G8, they threw Russia out. They should let Russia come back in because we should have Russia at the negotiating table. What do you guys think about that? Um, I mean, it's certainly an interesting position to take because, I mean, it's also quite a fundamentally interesting position to take, like, uh, on an international level, you know, the idea of expelling people from certain things as punishment. And... Trump does have a valid point in that it is a, it is an interesting argument to say the least that uh, this creates less cooperation and you know less stability for the future. Mm, I agree with that to to a certain extent, but on the other hand, I feel like it wouldn't look very good if they were just suddenly let back in. It's almost reinforces the message that you can get away with things if you just 
let it slide and other people will let you and it's sort of just showing that the boundaries of what's acceptable within an international community sort of being pushed even further. Yeah, I guess a good background to give to everyone is that uh, Russia was kicked out after the annexation of Crimea, which is pretty much widely condemned um, across the world by most countries. However, because Russia's privileged position within the Security Council and within the UN more generally, not much action was able to be taken in order to like curtail or punish Russia for the actions that they have taken. There have been attempts to economically sanction Russia, so I believe the EU had uh, imposed high tariffs as punishment, and a lot of it, other nations followed suit. But the G, um, formerly the G8, also kicked Russia out as punishment. Do you think that if you can't punish uh, a country for their bad behaviour any other way, that kicking them out of a summit is still a legitimate move to make? Um, I mean, I mean because the, there is an argument to be made as to like. Um, what's the point? Because, I mean, the the Western sanctions have, to an extent, damaged the Russian economy, especially with the um, new ones coming out of the uh, UK um, because of the killing of... Oh, attempted assassination. Yeah, the attempted of the, assassination. Uh, Russian former spy. Yeah. Um, but... I mean, ultimately, I don't think it has a very strong end goal for anyone. I don't think it helps promote peace, and I don't think it changes the attitude of countries towards uh, actions. I think it makes them. F- I think it's just an indifferent sort of action. Is that because we're dealing with Russia, who is unlikely to give up Crimea, is unlikely to undo the effects that they're being, you know, sanctioned for? If you can't get them to backtrack, why punish them? Is that your argument? I mean, I mean, there's a different argument. I think there's a strong, strong argument to be made for placing economic sanctions on Russia, but I don't see how um, picking people out of um, uh, economic cooperation platforms uh, helps uh, curtail a um, a nation's uh, behavior. That's my argument. Yeah. I feel like maybe part of the reason why that action was taken was to show the international sort of community that every action has a consequence. And it's, I suppose there are definitely negatives that come with that. Like, Russia would be a certainly very important player to include in all these conversations that are going to be happening over the summit. But with that being said, I think this potential for them to come back to the summit in the future. And I think that's something that is inc- like important to work towards, but on the condition that some sort of positive development has changed from now and then, not necessarily with Crimea specifically, but just Russia's behaviour, should I say, and other areas showing that they are, like, they want to be included in this conversation. Do you think, though, it's a bit... Um it would seem a bit strange to have an economic cooperation summit like the G7 or the G8, whatever it turns out to be, and then have all the members of that group be excluding one of the members. For an economic cooperation organisation, it seems a bit hypocritical for them to all be actively working against one of their own members. I feel like the idea would, was that to the members that are remaining that Russia didn't seem like it was willing to cooperate in other areas, therefore they're not confident in Russia's ability to cooperate economically as well. And that's sort of why 
action was taken. Um, we should also point out that Russia has, has this is not Russia's position in terms of being be, becoming involved in the G8. This is a proposal by Donald Trump and has been backed apparently by uh, the Italian Italy, government. Yeah. Um, but Russia has basically said, oh, we're not really interested in this. Uh, probably in line with your argument that not only does uh, many of the G7 members not see Russia as a an effective partner in economic development, but Russia is seeing all these tariffs imposed on it and is like, well, this doesn't feel like an economic cooperation body. So I mean, yeah, I I I mean, I may I mean, I think there may be a disagreement here, but I actually think Russia would have left anyway because Russia's uh, economic platform is increasingly at odds with the um, platform of the West in regards to. Which I don't think for an economic platform like that, especially because there's a lot of discussion at this one uh, about creating a, about um, creating various like bodies to try and uh, stop alleged Russian aggression. Yeah, mm. um, I would say that a lot of Russian action is retaliatory, though. So Russia, um, whenever the EU imposes tariffs or sanctions that. Uh, essentially are there to like make EU membership more appealing to non-members. Russia feels like it's an attack on them and they'll impose a tariff on EU countries and the, it becomes like this spiral of... Trade war. Tra- yeah, a little bit. Um, and I think in the same way Russia has always been forced to play like the reactionary agent. They don't have a strong enough economy so they have to create these like quite exaggerated kind of economic stances... Yeah. Reaction to like Western moves for economic interdependence. Uh, moving on, there's going to be uh, the other thing is going to be the other thing that's going to be quite high on the agenda at the summit will be will be uh, the economic tariffs that have been imposed because we saw Trump impose tariffs on steel and aluminium on uh, numerous countries and um, Canada then. Made then uh, impose some retaliatory tariffs, um, and so you know there's going to be they're, they're going to try and hope they're going to try and hammer out the recent tariff imp- impositions. Mm. Yeah, it seems like a rather interesting starting point for the summit. Not like when you associate something with like a summit you would assume that everyone's going in there with the idea of like cooperation and doing the best for everyone versus America seems to be going in with that like Donald Trump like America first sort of thinking and then all other countries are a bit cautious particularly with the new tariffs about where America's interests lie and how they can align their interests and it just seems a bit more self-serving than you would want this sort of summit to be focused about. Um, it's quite interesting because Trump originally tweeted out, please tell Prime Minister Trudeau and President Macron that they are charging the US massive tariffs and creating non-monetary ba- barriers. The EU trade plus with the US is $151 billion and Canada keeps our farmers and others out. Look forward to seeing them tomorrow. Wow. And then Tr- and Trump kind of doubled down and said, why isn't the European... In- and Canada informing the public that for years they've had massive trade tariffs and non-monetary trade barriers against the US. Totally too unfair to our farmers, workers and companies. Take down your tariffs and barriers and we will more than match you. I think it's quite strange to see Canada and America having this this yeah. fight. 
Um, it should be noted that these are security partners, these are economic partners. Uh, Canada has a trade deficit to the US, something that you know, Trump has been actively rallying against when it comes to US trade de- deficits to China. Well, this is a country that trades more to America, so you would think would aligned with Trump's, you know, America first philosophy on economic growth. It, it's so bizarre. I don't understand the logic of it. I feel like this just all goes back to the same conversation we always have with Trump, and it's something I pointed out earlier when we were researching. There's, um, you know, article titles being like, is Trump a really, really good game theorist that's really got the big strategy behind him, or he just has no idea what he's doing? Trump's playing 8D chess with the world. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. It's just... I feel like it's going to be confusing until the very end when we can figure out exactly what comes out of that summit, but it just doesn't instill you with the most hope, is what I would say. No, it is is a bit worrisome, especially as as Australia looking into the summit and not being able to access or be involved in it. It seems like these huge superpowers are just battling it out and we're kind of trapped in the middle of all of it. Mm. Um, It's going to be very interesting to watch. I guess something else interesting to quickly mention is that Trump will actually be leaving the summit early and that's for the meeting that he'll be having with uh, Kim Jong-un in Singapore. And what I thought was interesting is that he will actually be missing due to the structure of the program, talks on climate change, the environment and possibly gender equality. And it's conversations where we would want Trump to be there and he's essentially going to be not present at all and sort of like where his priority lies and how just these sort of two events have coincided. Well seeing uh, maybe focusing on the climate change um, thing looking back on how he acted during the G20 summit and the Paris climate agreement it might be maybe not intentional but fortuitous that he is absent so the G7 can kind of present a more united front on these kind of issues. I mean, most other partners have indicated that they're ready to act on global climate mm. change um, and I presume gender equality. Although Trump, I don't think he's ever... His personal life aside, I think he's never come out against gender inequality. Sorry, gender... He's never actively campaigned or made policy that fights against women entering the workplace. I, I feel like that'd think. be a tough thing to fight for. Yeah, um, it would be. I, I can't think of acts that he has done that has hampered women becoming economically um, mm. independent. But I haven't done the. I haven't looked this up specifically. Um, if you can think of something, obviously tweet us at @sinrepresent because. Um, you know, fact check. (laughs) We're going to moving on to talk a little bit about a case that has dragged on for several years, but it is, of course, the case of the wedding cake for the same-sex couple in Colorado. So the case was um, was originally brought to attention in 2012, but very recently the Supreme Court has ruled uh, for the Colorado baker who had refused to create a wedding cake for a same-sex couple. So, um... In that ruling, it was 72, I believe, and then what the judge and people involved wanted to communicate was that it was not a reflection of the entire conversation of specifically whether people had the religious freedom to refuse to 
I guess, provide service to same-sex couples compared to, I guess, same-sex couples' right to have service and non-discrimination. But it's more so in that very specific case where they believe that the case occurred, and I quote, uh, did not occur, sorry, with the neutral and respectful consideration which the uh, baker was entitled to. And basically the his religious freedom was sort of compromised and that's why that ruling took place. I think there's also something very specific with this case where the baker considered his work an artistic freedom as opposed, like it was an artistic freedom and therefore uh, his expression of speech and thought and therefore to force him to say something or to do something would undermine his Second Amendment rights. I think there was also an argument based off First. that. First Amendment, sorry, you're right. <laughs> you're not <laughs> not talking about. an American constitutionalist, yes. Um, uh, his, his First Amendment rights. Um, so there was a bit of debate on that as well. Um, what do you guys think of this case? I mean, I find it interesting how the um, Supreme Court ruled for the, ba- uh, for the Baker on largely procedural grounds and has kind of set aside the um, issue of kind of set aside the issue of whether states can have laws like that to, like, a further time, uh, stating that the issue must await further elaboration in the courts. That's uh, Justice Kennedy. Yeah. Um, can you can you explain what you mean by that? Well, so the court uh, ruled that, you know, that the, um, com- the commission's ruling couldn't stand because it had an anti-religious bias. Uh, but they didn't rule that the law itself was unconstitu- uh, unconstitutional. Instead, uh, they've kind of reserved that question. Um, and um, with uh, Justice Kennedy saying that the issue of whether the law itself is constitutional must await further elaboration. Yeah, so this is a this is a trial that's kind of been taken as like a emblematic of the whole religious freedom versus same sex marriage debate. But really, what you're saying is how the ruling worked out was it it was a procedural one rather than a statement on the actual legality of any one law or another. Yeah, yeah, which is quite interesting because um, I guess in Australia where we've just finished up with our same sex marriage um, pleb- postal plebiscite. And we still haven't seen the religious freedoms kind of counterbalancing legislation, which was part of the, I guess, um, yeah. uh, negotiation within the coalition party that they would separate the bills and vote once on marriage equality and then another on, I guess, balancing that with the rights of uh, religious officiants, but also potentially, you know, the bakers, the flowers, florists, the limo drivers. Um, how does this case in America actually have any power to sway how we think of religious freedoms in Australia? I mean, it could. Um, the the, um, the uh, religious freedom review that, the, um, that was announced by uh, Turnbull uh, last year uh, handed down its... Um, handed down its... handed down its report on May the 18th. And that report was headed by uh, Philip Ruddock. <laughs> okay, so it has been released. Um, did it? Because originally there was some discussion. Obviously, uh, religious officiants can deny, um, you know, holding a marriage ceremony if it does fight against their beliefs. Um, and religious organisations are given that power. But did they specifically mention whether, you know, bakers and florists and the like? would be given the same exemptions, or would they be covered 
would they be forced to give service under, you know, the Anti-Discrimination Acts? Uh, well, as far as I can tell, the report hasn't actually been released to the public. Oh, of course. Sorry. Um, my confusion. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, so we're still waiting to receive the results there. Um, but I think it was a big part of the No campaign, if you remember last year, that there was this conversation over whether we could force people of religious faith who didn't believe in same-sex marriage to be forced to conduct these ceremonies. And it would be interesting to see if there is any revival of this kind of commentary out of this case. Because it does sound... If you read the headlines, it does sound like the court is making a statement on the rights of religious groups to discriminate against same-sex marriage couples. Um, but it all, if you read the procedural, like Oscar um alluded to, you know, you see that it's actually based off very narrow readings of the law and how the law should be operated and the failure of the Colorado courts to enforce that. Uh, well, it was the commission. But the commission, sorry. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I will say, like, as you were mentioning, it doesn't... I feel like that is, like, the most accurate reading of what happened, but more people are taking it as a statement and there is sort of what I'm curious to hear about is what you guys think about like the core like the heart of the issue of like religious freedom versus I suppose right to non-discrimination um some of the stuff covered in the original article about the two sides of it is sort of the idea of the wedding cake being tied to I guess the wedding as like a very religious sort of um, exercise and then that sort of as you were saying earlier Zizi being tied into free expression of the cake as art compared to um, basically vendors not being able to escape essentially the law, the anti-discrimination law just because of their religion and uh, the person who made that sort of argument referenced back to a 1968 decision that said a, and I quote, barbecue restaurant owner must serve black customers even though uh, he claimed his religion did not embrace racial equality. So do you think this is just another step that I suppose we need to take in time or is this sort of like there's something fundamentally different? Well, in that 1968 that? case, correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe that the court struck down that argument that you could discriminate based off your religious belief based off race. I believe so. I think I'm it's just we're here. exploring the new realm of when it is a form of freedom of expression to discriminate against same-sex marriage couples. Mm. And I actually, I, I, I don't see how any private um, private company, private business could discriminate on any grounds, regardless of how artistic they believe their profession is. It, it doesn't seem right. I think we'd have just as great a moral quandary if, say, there was an uh, an artist or a painter who refused to paint for, say, a black couple or an interracial couple, we'd be just as appalled if that was the case. It's not merely this is an expression of love or this is a, this is a business that, you know, is an expression of love or this is a an, a, an event that expresses love. It's about the mere fact that private businesses are not in the business of denying service based off, you know... Discriminatory grounds, mm. you know, regardless of their freedom of speech. I think if you open a, sto- a, a storefront, you are open to the public. At least that's that's my perception. What do you What do you guys think? Um, it was quite interesting because in the case, the um, baker conceded that uh, pre-made goods could be sold could be sold to the couple, but because they they they're not uh, they're not uh, 
they're not uh, works that are protectable under the First Amendment, but said that, you know, the act of having to make the cake was an issue, a uh, First Amendment issue. That's just... I don't know, maybe I don't get it. Like, that just... The artistic expression of a cake being... The uh, being expression... I don't know. I think I do stand with you guys on this, where I think if you are providing a service, it's sort of not up to you to determine when you want to retract that service to send people based on your beliefs but I don't know it seems like a stretch for it to for that to be the protection for that case but yeah Mm. it'll be interesting to see if this kind of leads to um, is referenced within the religious um, review that in Australia that should Mm -hmm. be released to the public hopefully soon but it was finalized last month yeah. Um, so I guess we'll have to keep an eye out for Mr. Ruddock's report. Uh, we're going to go to our final topic, and this is a lot closer to home. We're discussing the new foreign interference and espionage bills, which have been sort of in the public for a bit of a while, but new legislation has come through after a series of more than 60 amendments after a previous um, Yeah. The bill. committee's spent a lot of time trying to hammer out a bipartisan... And... Uh, because when it was initially announced, there was a lot of criticism yeah. of it. Do you want to explain what the criticism was? Uh, well, the criticism was that it would uh, affect journalistic freedoms and would also force uh, various, uh, I guess, politically lobbying organisations to register as basically subordinates to political parties. So, uh, And that's, this included a get-up as well. Yeah. And it was seen as very, like, a, um, what's it called, partisan attack. Yeah, and so, yeah, and it was opposed by the Law Council of Australia as well as Get Up and numerous uh, media organisations, including the ABC and uh, Fairfax. Because um, one of the protocols said that any um, any person that releases secret documents which undermines Australia's standing with its partners and its trade, um, in yeah. its international standing, would could face up to 10 years in jail, which yeah. is obviously a very severe penalty and a lot of journalists, and there was no protection for, you know, uh, journalistic freedom or the right of the public to know. Uh, there has been an amendment which has seen some protections for journalists. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm not particularly aware. I mean, I only really, f- I only found out about the fact that it was hammered out from listening to Mark Dreyfus. I want to say uh, the shadow. Attorney General on the ra- on Talkback Radio <laughs> yesterday. Yeah, well, it, it's quite a complex legislation. It's kind of hard to wrap our heads around. But basically, the the legislation kind of came about after, um, I guess, we looked to America and we saw a lot of foreign interference with the U.S. elections, um, and also closer to home with kind of this. I guess I would say, like, anti-China politics kind of emerging, where a lot of people are critical of Chinese um, interference in Australia, both in terms of our politics and also in terms of our economic stability. Um, This has caused a bit of tension with China as well with this foreign interference bill, um, because a lot of it is seen as an anti-China bill. Yeah. Uh, China has criticised the bill and... It also came after, you know, recent talks apparently didn't go so well between uh, Julia Bishop and uh, Julia Bishop in China. Um, so the public am- the um, amendments, from my understanding, says a public interest one. And there's also an attorney general consent, so the attorney general has to consent to any prosecution under the Act, 
which has been viewed by some people controversially as being, you know, a political thing. As a way for our government to target yeah. certain political affiliations as opposed to others? Yeah. Mm. Yeah, which is a bit worrying. I think the the major criticism that we're seeing of this bill at the moment is the pace in which it's trying to get passed through. Yeah. So the current Attorney General, who is uh, Stephen Porter, I believe, um, he kind of set this artificial deadline um, of just... Sorry, not Stephen Porter, Christian Porter. Um, he set this artificial deadline where he wanted this um, anti-foreign interference bill to be put... Uh, to be passed through Parliament um, and kind of put in place before the upcoming uh, by-election Super Saturday or whatever it's called um, on July 28th. Um, I believe the the rationale for this is to stop any potential foreign interference into those quite crucial by-elections, uh, but also so that, I guess, those, I think it's 500,000 people can vote on, I guess, to get a bearing on how... Um, serious we want these legislations to be passed through what do you guys think um i think it's i think it's going to be um quite interesting because there hasn't really been like there hasn't been a lot of time for um because the agreement to uh i guess resolve it was uh kind of hammered out yesterday so there hasn't been a lot of time for uh media organizations and you know organizations like get up and to be able to, you know, respond and revise their position uh, in relation to the amendment. So I think it's going to be interesting to see what comes out of that, and especially what comes out of um, uh, the Law Council. And I think that's quite a worrying precedent, that we're not given enough time to for the public to kind of digest these huge national security changes um, yeah, in such a short sure. time. I mean, this was done, obviously, in a bipartisan fashion, but when it comes to national security, I think that this is not something that can just be hammered out behind closed doors within governments or oppositions. It actually needs to be discussed in the public because this could have, you know, quite important civil liberties implications to a lot of people. Um, and I think this is also quite interesting because uh, some people... Because with this, you know, this kind of rushing of legislation through, although usually it's when the legislation is partisan um, as opposed to here, but usually this kind of legislation rushing is quite common in the um, US, you know, where they release these um, massive bills that can sometimes span thousands of pages. And this is done especially a lot during budget time. Uh, and then they're given, you know, only a cu- on, you know, only a couple of days or even less to, you know, be able to read it. And it kind of... St- stops any proper discussion of like the legitimacy of some of the policies or the politics behind it. Yeah, I will say that I personally haven't been following this issue as much, but even as I'm looking at some of the information we've collected right now, I'm just sort of thinking, surely that's not a good idea. Maybe you guys can give me a bit more insight into this, but I'm just reading here that under the new Foreign Influence Transparency Scheme Bill, that's such a mouthful, um, basically organisations like Amnesty will essentially lose their power or have their power diminished to hold the Australian government accountable for any sort of human rights violations. That seems like the sort of holding Australia government accountable sounds like inherently a good thing, and I just don't understand why there would be any challenge or changes to that to... I guess, weaken the power of these international organisations to hold governments well, in power. We also saw with the um, original bill, the um, Catholic Church was quite worried that it would force... Uh, they would force priests and 
um, uh, and archbishops to register as foreign agents of the Vatican Church. I mean, of the Vatican. Which seems quite ridiculous if you think about it in that fashion. Yeah, that these these Australian religious leaders suddenly become emissaries to, you know, somewhere that they might not have ever been or have much connection to, apart from, you know, the the religious connections. Yeah, it's... At least I, I am hoping that there's more active discussion on this. I'm a little disappointed with the Labour Party for not actually putting out more opposition or, you know, mm. asking for more public consultation. This does seem very rushed and it does seem like Labour is very scared to come out in opposition um, when it comes to national security issues. I think the coalition has really been able to claim the role of we are for national security, we're tough on national security and Labour's been kind of wedged into this position where they can never be, they can never kind of control the government in that national security overreach without the fear of them being painted as weak or, you know, not wanting to fight. Yeah. Um, but of course, we want to hear what you think. Send us a tweet at, at SinRepresent um, or you can uh, message us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash SinRepresent. We're um, going to go to a different issue. Yes. So there's been, um, there's recently been leaked to uh, Fairfax Media a secret report detailing alleged uh, war crimes in Af- during the Afghanistan campaign uh, by Australian uh, by Australian elite forces. So there's currently a uh, hearing by um, there's currently a hearing underway before a um, New South Wales Supreme Court justice on uh, the on the issue. Well, not a hearing, a inquiry uh, that's been organised. I think by a major general. Yeah. Now, obviously, we don't have many details about this because I believe the inquiry is just into the existence of the... Yeah. Yeah, so so we're not having details about the actual potential war crimes that um, Australian soldiers might have committed in Afghanistan, but we are hearing that there is some investigation into it, which would be quite interesting. Uh, We were having a discussion before the show um, about how little attention is kind of paid to Afghanistan at home and I kind of made the observation that you know I've um, Afghanistan is one of our longest lasting wars um, and it's I started school in 2001 when we started Afghanistan and I've gone all the way from primary school to my master's and we're still involved in this war and there's still troops out there and then Oscar made you feel old because Oscar (laughs) go on the Afghanistan war has um, has lost last started before I was born that's crazy. That makes, <laughs> makes us feel so. <laughs> I mean, but this is something that we really don't pay attention to, and I think it would be very interesting to hear Australia's involvement and its history involvement in a, our longest war, and I guess expose the potential war crimes that might have been committed or just the actions that have been committed under our role as a coalition force. Yeah. Um. So, so um. There's been you know sort of a political it's kind of made to mainstream politics. So Labour has said that it is seeking a briefing from the government and is deeply concerned and wants the report to be available to the public except for national security concerns. Um, And so Defence Minister uh, Murray's Payne has said said that... um, has, you know, kind of acknowledged the uh, situation that the SAS finds itself in 
uh, describing it as a complex, chaotic, and very dangerous environment, but said that the allegations of unsanctioned and illegal application of violence on operations uh, were being thoroughly investigated. Mm. And this may hark back to um, what we were talking about previously, but there was some speculation as, as to whether this Fairfax Media report revealing the existence of a special counsel into potential war crimes um, could actually be in violation of the Espionage Act as well. Yeah. So it's it's kind of a very nebulous uh, world between yeah. our national security interests and our right to know about national security. Um, obviously something we'll be talking about a lot more, and hopefully if it does get released, we'll be talking about it further. Um Obviously, send us your thoughts on our Twitter and Facebook um, and let us know what you think. We're going to go now to everyone's favourite segment. This is Head to Head. That's right. This week, we are going to be talking a little bit of impersonators of Kim Jong-un and Trump. Of course, once again, in the lead up to the June 12th. Uh, meeting that's going to happen between them and very recently an Australian who goes by Howard X um, was detained in a Singaporean airport as he was making his way there to impersonate Kim Jong-un and he um, I believe is based in Melbourne and is of Chinese descent and he has impersonated Kim Jong-un in the past including most uh, notably at the Korean Olymp- Winter Olympics where he, I believe, impersonated Kim Jong-un in front of the North Korean cheerleaders and they weren't that impressed. So he is actually going to be there and um, he was questioned in the airport for about two hours basically about his political views and if he is going to be involved in any sort of protesting. Of course, in Singapore, protesting is very um, restricted. You have to be in a specific area and you have to request that area. Um, but Howard informed them that he was not thinking of doing anything like that. And there's been some very nice, interesting photos taken of him and a Donald Trump impersonator just sort of walking around Singapore. And I believe some people have actually mistaken them for the real deal. So for Head to Head, what we're doing today is we had a big, bit of a search. There's not that many uh, Kim Jong-un impersonators, but there are a lot of Trump impersonators. So I'm going to get Oscar and Zizi to look at some of the examples and give some commentary on how good or bad they think the attempt is. So here we have number one. What do you guys think? Describe the picture for our audience. I mean, he's definitely got the, the long tie going. It's very an iconic look. Um, I'm not sure if he actually looks that much like him, apart from the, the fake toupee and the long tie. The, the, the eyebrows aren't accurate at all. Yeah. So Dario <laughs> Ballantini did not impress our two contestants, and he <laughs> is a impersonated comedian, painter, and actor, and he has um, impersonated Donald Trump, uh, in this instance of the picture, at an Italian theatre in Milan. The more you know. Is he Italian or is he an American I, impersonator? I assume Italian, oh. s- judging from the name, but I wouldn't know from there. Now we've got number two. We've got Donald Trump impersonator next to, I believe, Obama impersonator he, and Kim Jong-un <laughs> impersonator. What do you guys think? He's definitely got the jowls. <laughs> better Much, than the last one? Yeah, or? better than the last one. 
And his his tan is just as patchy as the president, <laughs> I think. Oh no! What do you think, Oscar? Um. Yeah, it's, it doesn't have the it doesn't have quite the right like face. Still shape. doesn't. I feel like Oscar. he looks more like a Nixon impersonator that's somehow mm. fallen into a Donald Trump costume. <laughs> <laughs> if you can kind of get that image in your minds. And this guy, actually, his name, his last name is Alan, and he is the person actually who has appeared in several pictures with our um, Australian-based Howard, um, Kim, jo- Kim Jong Un impersonator in. Singapore, so a bit disappointing that he did not impress either of you. I think he was more impressive than uh, the the Italian. Yeah, yeah. Number three, personally, I find this one pretty convincing. Yeah, no, I think he's definitely got a closer face to Donald Trump. Yeah, yeah. So his his hair is a bit more fake than the president's. mm -hmm. Um, he's maybe exaggerated that slightly, but definitely a very um genuine-looking impersonator. Mm -hmm. To give some context, this is actually an unnamed impersonator, but um, a person that was featured in Alison Jackson's photo, and he is posing in front of the Trump Tower. He's sort of giving a thumbs-up to the camera, and there's a um, woman next to him. (laughs) And attempt number four, we'll give here. What do you guys think? I think the Melania impersonator next to him is amazing. Um, again, I feel like he looks more like a different president than Donald Trump. He's giving me Clinton vibes. Bill Clinton, obviously. Um, <laughs> to... <laughs> yeah, his, yeah, his eyelashes are... <laughs> Hard to impress. So this is Marcel Forestieri. And he has actually impersonated Jay Leno and Elvis in the past as well. And then he, uh, the woman next to him is Mikey Manning, who is impersonating Melania Trump quite impressively. And our last contestant we've got here, what are we feeling? Oh, uh, I, f- I feel like he is very Trump-esque. But he doesn't quite look like him either. I feel like the he's he's a bit too skinny. What about the gaze? I think he's got the the white patches under the eyes and the 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 crinkles of disapproval. Um, mm. Correct. Well, his name is Robert Ensler, and I feel like he would be a bit heartbroken hearing how you guys have commented on him because he calls himself the real President Donald Trump impersonator and has been channeling Trump since two thousand and five. <laughs> And a committed <laughs> Trump um, impersonator. And guess what, guys? If you think he's done a good job, he works parties and conventions, offers photo shoots, and even does keynote speeches in character. So if you guys need a Trump impersonator at your next party, you know who to hook up. Well, obviously something that everyone should be investigating. I don't know. Um, well, that's all we all the time for we have on the show today. I hope you've enjoyed it. Um, if you've enjoyed any of the topics, you can tweet us at, at SinRepresent or join us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash SinRepresent. And, of course, the photos that we were discussing earlier, we'll put them up on Twitter for you guys to vote on which you think is the most accurate. And yes, so keep tuned and we'll be podcasting this session. And the next segment coming on after us is its literature. So stay tuned. This show is produced by Zizi Averill and Maggie Lou. I'm Maggie. I'm Zizi. And I'm Oscar. And, and remember, remember to stay, stay political. political.